Welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm Hussein Haqqani. Uh, I direct the South and Central Asia program here. Uh, Hudson Institute was founded in 1967 by strategist Herman Kahn. And the purpose was to try and challenge conventional thinking and help manage strategic transitions to the future through interdisciplinary studies in defense, international relations, economics, healthcare, technology, culture, and law. Uh, let me introduce our president, uh, Ken Weinstein. It's a pleasure to have you here, Ken. And uh, uh, would you like to launch by saying something? Well, so it is a pleasure for us today that we are uh, launching our report, An Integrated Approach to the Himalayas. Uh, it is the product of our working group on the Himalayan region, which has included several uh, good people, uh, not just from Hudson, but from other think, think tanks as well. We had Andrew Small from the German Marshall Fund, uh, who could not make it today because he's unwell, David Michael from the Stimson Center, Jeff Smith, who is with us, uh, from the Heritage Foundation, and Michael Kugelman from Wilson Center. Uh, Hudson's own scholars, uh, Dr. Aparna Pandey and Eric Brown, whom you will be uh, hearing from today, uh, contributed significantly to this report. Uh, we at Hudson have for some years now believed that it is important to focus both on individual countries, uh, but also on the big picture, uh, understanding regional dynamics. And we think that the Himalayas uh, is one region that needs to be understood in its uh, regional context. The Trans-Himalayan region extends some 1,500 miles. It traverses India, Bhutan, China, Nepal, and Pakistan. Uh, Long-standing border disputes and strategic rivalries in the area mean that new connectivity schemes, both international, infrastructural, uh, and economic, are laden with geopolitical geopolit significance and security implications. Um, the area is also host to a wide variety of non-state, violent, extremist, and separatist movements with a diverse array of political, economic, and religious motivations and ambitions. Some operate as self-contained domestic insurgencies, while others have transnational characteristics and operate across borders or receive support from external parties. In either case, these groups represent a, a real threat to the security of the region and to key U.S. partners. And the issues they cause must be rectified to establish regional stability. Uh, more important, the Himalayas have significant uh, relevance uh, for uh, the global environment. And that is why it is a pleasure for us that uh, we have with us somebody who cares greatly about the environment as well as uh, about um, uh, 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 issues that impact the Himalayan region and make it significant uh, for the international community. Uh, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island uh, is a graduate of Yale University and the University of Virginia School of Law. Uh, he served as Rhode Island's Director of Business Regulation uh, and uh, uh, was nominated to be Rhode Island's United States Attorney uh, quite a while back. Senator, you don't want me to tell the years. That will age you. Uh, he was elected Attorney General of Rhode Island and then became uh, Rhode Island's senator uh, for the, in the United States Senate from 2006. I've had the pleasure of dealing with him uh, during my service as Pakistan's ambassador to the US. Uh, senator Whitehouse is currently a member of the Budget Committee, the Environment and Public Works Committee, uh, the Judiciary Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and the Special Committee on Aging. Uh, he's the ranking member of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism, 
and the uh, Environment and Public Works uh, Subcommittee on Oversight. Uh, he has a specific and special interest uh, in uh, uh, in, uh, the, in issues relating to energy and environment and has very kindly accepted to be the keynote speaker today uh, on the occasion of the launch of our report. Senator Whitehouse. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you first to Hudson for inviting me to the launch of this report. Thank you to Ken for the honor of turning up for my remarks. I appreciate it uh, very much. And thank you to Ambassador Haqqani for your great leadership in our relationship with Pakistan and for your very, very kind introduction. Uh, the Hudson Institute report comes at a critical time in the region Relations between Pakistan and India have long been fraught. In human history, violent conflicts over water are as old as memory. Kashmir is a crucible of contest for riparian control of great rivers, and climate change is destabilizing water flows. The result of this combination is a region ripe for conflict, even devastation. A piece of this story is found at Ohio State in a nondescript industrial-looking building that you get into up chipped concrete stairs. Down a flickering linoleum hallway is a meat locker-type door, behind which is one of the most remarkable libraries on the planet. Instead of books, however, this library stores ice cores drilled out of glaciers around the world by Professor Ellen Mosley Thompson and her husband, Professor Lonnie Thompson. Ellen and Lonnie are glaciologists who run Ohio State's Bird, Polar, and Climate Research Center. They have spent their lives studying the world's glaciers, including over 34 years working and researching in the Himalayan region. So behind that meat locker door, a vast freezer holds their ice core samples cut out of ancient glaciers around the world some of which are now gone. Those long cylinders of ice in an Ohio freezer, their only remaining relic. State-of-the-art instruments allow scientists to read the ice cores. By evaluating ratios of oxygen and hydrogen isotopes, they can build a record of atmospheric temperature going far before humankind into Earth's history. Molecules and dust particles measured with Chromatographs and particle counters tell stories of prehistoric droughts and how farming and industrial practice contributed to air pollution over the centuries. The ice cores tell us that humans are fundamentally altering the chemistry of the Earth's air. And they tell how the changes caused by our emissions are rapidly altering the Earth's climate. Ellen and Lonnie observe climate change in the Himalayan region, not hypothetical models, not far-off projections, but present actual observations by experts who've worked for decades in those mountains. And 30 years of satellite data tells the tale of glacier retreat on the Tibetan Plateau, the most intense in the Himalayas. If, if we manage to keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade, Lonnie and Ellen warn that temperatures across most of the Himalayas 
would still rise 2.1 degrees centigrade on average. This optimistic, in quotes, scenario would cut Himalayan glacier mass more than a third by 2100. Business as usual means loss of nearly 70% of Himalayan glacier mass. This has enormous geopolitical implications. The U.S. Institute of Peace reports three hazards that poor responses to climate shifts create shortages of resources such as land and water. Shortages are followed by negative secondary impacts such as more sickness, hunger, and joblessness. Poor responses to these in turn open the door to conflict. I would add a fourth hazard to their list. In the international competition of ideologies and ideas, reputational harm to America, capitalism, and democracy for having failed to act timely to address the carbon emissions problem. As your report points out, these high glaciers of the Himalayas are essential to Asia's water supply. Yearly snow and glacier melt feeds rivers throughout Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, and Nepal. Over one billion people rely on this water source. One river, the Indus, provides 40% of the dry season water for China, Pakistan, and India. Pakistan's major rivers are all fed by glacial meltwater from India. More melting means more flow, and climate change also can intensify heavy rains during monsoon season. The combined effect can be devastating floods. In 2010, floodwaters surged through Pakistan's Indus Valley, killing more than 1,700 people, causing food shortages for 4 million people, and resulting in an estimated $43 billion in property damage. Disasters like this strain the capacity of governments and allow extremists to stoke resentment and conflict. Because they are melting, the glaciers are also shrinking. At some point, the swell of added meltwater is offset by the shrinkage of the glacier, and the system veers from flood toward drought. As glaciers in the western Himalayas continue to disappear, the runoff that supplies Pakistan's rivers could drop by 40 to 50 percent. On top of all of this, India is planning to build dams on the Chenab River in volatile Kashmir, through which the river flows downstream to Pakistan. Pakistan fears India pinching the Chenab's flow to put pressure on Islamabad, especially in times of heightened conflict. Suspicions of riparian mischief run high, and partition-era memories linger. Food security, power generation, and public safety are all at stake, giving nuclear-armed adversaries a lot to fight over. The disruptive effects of climate change are, of course, not unique to Asia. Here in the U.S., the average number of billion-dollar weather disasters is about five per year. This year, the U.S. has already seen 15 of those billion-dollar weather disasters so far. Every nation must work to reduce the carbon pollution that is driving this global climate change. I believe we have a sensible remedy before us, a carbon fee, like the one Senator Brian Schatz and I introduced in our American Opportunity Carbon Fee Act. 
The idea has bipartisan bona fides. Virtually every Republican who has thought the climate change problem through to a solution comes to the same place. Put a price on carbon emissions and return the revenue to the American people. Former Treasury Secretaries Baker, Schultz, and Paulson, former EPA Administrators Ruckelshaus, Thomas, Riley, and Whitman, and leading economists and former Presidential Economic Advisors Arthur Laffer, Gregory Mankiw, and Douglas Holtz-Eakin all support a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon fee. It is imperative that we work toward a solution. A report by the National Intelligence Council prepared in January for the new president informed him that issues like climate change invoke high stakes and will require sustained collaboration. The report released today echoes that call and offers concrete recommendations. Continue providing natural disaster relief and taking precautionary measures to mitigate the effects of severe weather events, severe weather events it advises. Washington can help alleviate, even if indirectly, the effects of natural catastrophes and climate change in the region. By doing so, it would forestall economic crises and destabilization that could result from increases in the number and severity of extreme weather events. Traveling in Pakistan after the floods, I was struck by how keen the gratitude was for American help. Someone rescued by an American helicopter, or treated by an American doctor, or fed by American MREs does not soon forget it. Thank you for this compelling analysis of the geopolitical and environmental issues facing the Himalayan region. I look forward to continuing this important discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, we understand that you have to leave in a few minutes uh, to go back to the Senate to do important work. Uh, so therefore, I think we will take questions for you right now. If there are questions from the audience, you have very kindly agreed to take them. Uh, let's have questions for Senator Whitehouse. Stunning surprise has caught if, everybody if, without their if, questions ready. If, Here we go. Yeah. Alan Kronstadt from the Congressional front. Research Service, uh, scholar. Uh, Thank you. I am Alan Kronstadt, Congressional Research Service. Sir, uh, Thank you thanks for your outstanding comments. work. I appreciate it. We count on you. Um, so um, I guess a, a basic overview type question of given uh, signs that this administration is um, uh, moving away from using assistance uh, with Pakistan, uh, including non-military assistance of the type that has in the past helped with their energy insecurity and, and infrastructure, um, how, how might we approach uh, assistance or how would you like to see assistance to Pakistan used? in the context of environmental um, issues faced by Pakistan and other countries in, in South Asia? Well, I think most of the pressure that the administration seems to intend uh, to bring on Pakistan is designed to urge Pakistan to improve its performance with respect to Afghanistan. My last trip before Senator McCain's diagnosis was with him to Pakistan and Afghanistan, and both sides have acquired, I think, significant resentment that people who do evil terrorist deeds in their country cross the Durand Line and shelter on the other side. The Afghanistan 
military is frustrated that people get away from them into Pakistan. The Pakistan military is ir irritated and frustrated that people get away from them into Afghanistan. The work that uh, Pakistan has done to improve enforcement along the border, to build fences, to build more stations, uh, the success that they've had so far in South Waziristan, at least pushing back in that province, um, the reign of terrorists that had been uh, extant for a long time, I think shows that uh, Pakistan is starting to move in the right direction. <laughs> if it were up to me, I would say get an administration nominated and Senate confirmed ambassador into Afghanistan. November, a year after the inauguration uh, election, oughtn't to be too soon for that. Get a administration appointed Senate confirmed ambassador into Pakistan. Again, a year is plenty of time. These are very important places. Get a Senate confirmed person into the South and Central Asia office at the State Department and pay attention and get to work. I think that there is, while there's plenty of suspicion between Pakistan and Afghanistan, I think that there is also enough of an opportunity for goodwill that we can start to work better to help coordinate joint operations and attack the common enemy, particularly that ill-named network that uh, <laughs> is so often up to uh, uh, no good. You mean the network that stole my family's last name? That's night. the one. <laughs> among other evil deeds. I want to say it. Among, among, other other, among other evil deeds that yes. they have done. Um, so I think that is a focus, and I think if that is achieved, then the <clears throat> degree to which pressure needs to be applied begins to abate itself quite a lot. I think that's the motivation for the pressure. Question here. Uh, please wait for the mic. Yeah. Hi, Zeb Trainer, you. Senator, I'd like to have your comments on an article yesterday at Indian News that China is planning to build a tunnel. It's a thousand kilometer. Uh, south of Tibet, north of India, to suck up all the water. Well, that touches on a couple of important points. One is, I think, that we tend to underestimate the role of water as a vital resource and a uh, uh, catalyst of conflict. Um, as our population on the planet grows, demand for water is going to continue to be essential, and I think will be more and more fought over, particularly when settled expectations of when and where water will appear are disrupted by climate change. So um, I think that's one of the senses in which the Department of Defense has over and over again called climate change a catalyst of conflict and put it into their quadrennial defense reviews. Um, it also touches on the problem that as the United States disengages from the world, and takes an America-first nationalist position, China is only too happy to fill in the vacuum that we have left. Um, I believe very strongly that we are in an international a world contest of ideologies, and that it's vitally important that America's ideology be put out there and that we live our values so that the city on a hill that we talk about ourselves as does in fact shine so that the power of our example is in fact effective uh, in the world and I think disengagement allows for uh, Chinese kind of backfilling into that. Now I don't think their values match very well what people are looking for but if we're not there then big projects like that like highways, the China Road and so forth all the different projects that they're building in Africa create a fairly strong proxy presence that um, 
becomes much stronger if we're disengaged. So we have time for very, very little time because the senator has to rush. Um, a couple and I'm a senator. Questions. I give long answers. It's in the job description. Yeah. <laughs> so short question here. And I'm so sorry. We won't be able to take your question. We'll try for a short answer, too. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm a student at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. I oh, congratulations. I wish you well. I hope there's still a State Department for you. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm um, sure there will be, Senator. <laughs> Walking the empty hallways. <laughs> so my question has to deal with engaging local communities. Uh, I, we were just talking about you know, America having to uh, you know, project its values in the rest of the world. How important is engaging local communities on these frontline states, such as in like Ladakh, um, you know, there are like border regions within between Pakistan and China, yeah. and what are some strategies by which we can engage? Um, I think it's 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 really important. Um, there is a uh, category of foreign service officer or of, of of position that I think is called technology environment and science, maybe, which is sort of an overlooked thread through the State Department. Um, often when I am in a country team meeting, when we're visiting the embassy on a CODEL, that part of the State Department is not even represented in the country team. I think that's a part of the State Department that has to grow very dramatically, because if you are a poor country and your fishery has just gone seeking cooler waters, or if you are a herding country and what used to be <coughs> viable uh, countryside for sheep and cattle is no longer supporting them because desert has grown, or if you can't grow the plants you used to grow, or if you're underwater because of the floods like Bangladesh is looking forward to, you are going to need help and you are going to need to plan. And the more that we can be there with these people saying we understand the problem, we've thought this through, here are potential solutions, you need to have really good headlights when the world is coming at you fast. And science and the kind of advice that America's universities and government can provide can provide those headlights. And if those headlights allow these countries to avoid bad collisions with new oncoming facts, then that is very much in our interest. So when you go to the State Department, encourage that, uh, whatever it's called, I'm, uh, technology, environment, science, I think is the the thread, um, because I think that's going to become more and more important for the exercise of our soft power and to show that we are interested, engaged, and humane uh, in the world. And I think we have advantages over all of our competitors in that, but not if we don't show up and not if we don't live our values. Well, Senator, thank you very much. I had been. Thank you so uh, much. I, I, I had cut a deal with your staff uh, <coughs> that I will make sure that you leave here at 12:25, so we've got a minute to spare. Great, much appreciated. Thank you all for doing this. This is a really important report. Thank you very much. Such a pleasure, thank you, Ambassador. Don't forget to give them the microphone. Sure. Excellent. Thank you. Have a good conversation. Thank you, sir. And Senator, do give us back our microphone. <laughs> I'll request my colleague, Dr. Aparna Pandey, to join us here at the stage. Okay. So we already heard Senator Whitehouse. Let's, we are all people who worked on this report together. Uh, let's try and share some of the more significant findings of it uh, with our audience. Um, 
Uh, and uh, basically, we touched on uh, four major subject areas. We focused on the security of the Himalayas, uh, the regional connectivity uh, um, uh, among Himalayan states, uh, water usage and climate change, and then cultural preservation, uh, the protect, including the protection of women and minorities. Um, what I will suggest is that the four members of the task force who are sitting here, of the working group who are sitting here, each one in, say a few words about what they thought was the most important aspect of this endeavor to try and do a, a report on an integrated approach to the Himalayas. Uh, and then we can have a discussion among ourselves and include the audience in it. So if that's OK, I would request Jeff Smith from the Heritage uh, Foundation to go first. Uh, you were part of our effort. You participated in the, in, in the meetings. Uh, you contributed significantly to the report. What were you looking at when you were working with us on creating a report on an integrated approach to the Himalayas? <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Ambassador Khani, for assembling this group of eminent scholars and for um, sort of birthing the idea to do an integrated uh, approach to the Himalayas report. I thought it offered uh, a valuable opportunity to maybe take a step back from the day-to-day -day trends that we're following and think a little more holistically about the security trends um, impacting the region. And, you know, maybe take a different approach by beginning with the fact that they're not all bad, that there are actually a few good trends, security trends uh, across the Himalayas, particularly when you look at the intrastate situation. Um, if you go back just a few years, um, certainly 10 years, and you looked at the region, you had a fairly virulent domestic insurgency uh, in Nepal with the Maoists. You had India combating the Naxalites, uh, which were identified as the greatest internal security threat there by Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. You had Sri Lanka battling the Tamil Tigers. Uh, you had more intense insurgencies in Kashmir and in India's northeast. And you had, I would say, a bigger problem with Islamist extremism in Bangladesh. And while not all those problems have been resolved, in many ways, I think most of them are in a better state now than they were five or 10 years ago. Some of them um, have, the situation has dramatically improved. Uh, the one exception, of course, would be the current crisis in Burma with the Rohingya, which is putting uh, tremendous stress on neighboring Bangladesh as well, a humanitarian crisis there. But uh, I think the intrastate sort of domestic insurgency problems that were plaguing most countries in the region uh, for some time, those situations have improved in recent years. And India's relationship with many of its neighbors, I would say, has improved, particularly with Bangladesh uh, over the last three years, having resolved a maritime boundary dispute, having resolved a territorial dispute and a border swap, having exchanged visits between uh, prime ministers. Um, I think relations for, for among India and most of its neighbors are on the upswing, and of course relations with the U.S. Uh, have improved significantly. So there's some stability there. Um, the bad news is uh, India's relations with it, its, its two uh, big neighbors to the east and west have, have not improved. And uh, the China-India relationship in particular is subject, an area that I watch very closely, uh, there has been a steady deterioration 
uh, in, in bilateral relations. And this is something that really began in the late 2000s, I would say slowly and gradually, but has accelerated in recent years, uh, particularly during the Xi and Modi era, which frankly got off to an unfortunate start when during, prime, uh, during President Xi's inaugural visit to India in 2014, there was a uh, intrusion uh, by the PLA across the border in Ladakh, sort of overshadowing and kind of poisoning the atmospherics of that initial visit. Uh, the next year, uh, China assumed control of the Gowadar port, uh, reached an agreement with Pakistan to sell it eight submarines in its largest ever defense deal, and uh, opened a new military base in the Indian Ocean, in Djibouti, where Chinese submarines and, and, uh, and military vessels have been operating with greater frequency, contributing to the sense of, uh, I think, encirclement in some corners in Delhi and um, creating new avenues for friction and competition. Of course, this year, uh, some of this culminated in what many believe is the most uh, volatile crisis at the China-India border, uh, at the Doklam disputes, actually the China-Bhutan border, but for all intents and purposes, it was treated as an extension of the China-India border dispute, uh, an over two-month standoff between Chinese and Indian border forces in the tri-junction area where Bhutan meets with Tibet and Sikkim. That was resolved, um, but through a disengagement, not a complete withdrawal. So there are still sizable numbers of Indian and Chinese forces not far from one another in the area. And there is concern about what this portends for the future of uh, border management along the line of actual control. So I would say with the China-India relationship, there has been a crystallizing, uh, crystallizing of the competitive elements of the relationship and last but not least, um, Pakistan, which uh, continues to be problematic uh, for several reasons uh, to several countries in the region and, and to ourselves. Um, I'm often asked by people outside of Washington, maybe friends or family back home, you know, read all these headlines about Pakistan. Could it really be as bad as it sounds in the press? Of course not. It's much, much worse, much, much worse. Um, I've been watching Pakistan now for many years, and I've been uh, highly critical of Pakistan's role in supporting insurgencies, terrorist groups operating within Pakistan, targeting India, Afghanistan, and the United States. Um, I don't see a material improvement in the situation there. I don't see that the Pakistani government, the Pakistani military, has had a paradigm shift has decided to take a fundamentally different approach to the terrorists within its borders. What we may see is the U.S. government taking a different approach. There's, I think, for the first time in a while, uh, the opportunity and the possibility that the Trump administration will change course um, and will decide to try employing carrots. That, in my opinion, has not been done yet. Uh, withholding some money for a job poorly done is not a stick. That is not punishment. Uh, that is fair, but it's not punishment. And if you read the statements by Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis, it seems that there's a greater willingness now to make this a transactional approach. And if there are not results, then there will be a cost to pay. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, uh, Michael Kugelman, 
uh, Woodrow Wilson Center, you may not uh, completely agree with everything that Jeff said, uh, may have your own views, but you were also part of our team and you focused on certain areas more than others. Please share with us your general thoughts in a four or five minute summary uh, on the subject of the integrated approach to the Himalayas. Sure. Well, thank you, Ambassador Hakani, and thank you to the Hudson Institute for including me uh, in this. And congratulations for this uh, excellent report. So I, I signed on to this report uh, essentially because it calls for uh, or invites the US to take a broader view uh, of its policy in South Asia, both geographically and conceptually. I was um, disappointed, um, though this is certainly understandable, uh, that the Trump, that President Trump's South Asia strategy, when it was announced, appears to explicitly at least cover only three countries, uh, India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And this report really highlights how a number of key countries in South Asia have a number of uh, interconnectivities and many shared challenges, um, from terrorism to water insecurity and many things in between. Uh, and the report also highlights that failing to address these challenges has implications for stability <coughs> and therefore for U.S. interests. So, you know, not to state the obvious, but I think it's important to highlight this very basic fact that conflict, terror, and other forms of violence are not the only triggers for instability. Interconnectivities rooted in non-security issues have major security implications and therefore implications for U.S. interests. Um, you know, look at water stress. Water issues are a thing that I've looked at quite a lot in the, in the India-Pakistan uh, context. You know, many countries in South Asia and the Himalayan region share the same rivers and yet they don't get along. Uh, you know, the riparian pairings of the Himalayas are very volatile. For instance, India and Pakistan with the Indus uh, and its tributaries, China and India for the Brahmaputra. Uh, and I would argue that water, water stress really raises the stakes, both for upper and lower riparians. And we, the, the report gets into this. Upper riparians may be more inclined to uh, take certain actions that would be able to bottle up water and prevent it from flowing downstream. Uh, when the stakes rise, when water stress intensifies significantly, lower riparians may be more inclined to retaliate. Um, with harsher measures, including violence, to hit back at what they view as the unfair policies of their upper riparian neighbors. And this is the case in both domestic and uh, transnational contexts. River-sharing disputes can and do sharpen tensions between riparian pairings such as Punjab and Sindh uh, provinces in Pakistan with the Indus, uh, or between the riparian pairings of uh, Karataka and Tamil Nadu states in, with, uh, in India with the, the Calvary River. And you have similar dynamics between India and Pakistan with the Indus and China and India with the Brahmaputra. You know, water stress very significantly can also strengthen the cause of militants, uh, in my view. You know, in Pakistan, for a number of years, Lashkar-e-Taiba, one of the major uh, terror groups there, has incorporated water issues into its propaganda. It, it routinely has accused India of stealing Pakistan's water, accuses upper uh, riparian India of stealing Pakistan's uh, water. And this rhetoric, I would argue, could, could, could certainly stand to increase uh, and to perhaps resonate more with the public when the water stress is particularly severe. Uh, and also, I think water, another important thing to highlight that is, is, is in the report, water can become a weapon in um, regional geopolitics. When India-Pakistan uh, relations were in a particularly bad state last year, at one point, I'm sure many of you will remember that India threatened to withdraw unilaterally from the Indus Waters Treaty. Uh, this would have given 
India the right, essentially, to start building uh, dams and stopping water from flowing into Pakistan. If that had actually happened, obviously very hypothetical, it would have major implications uh, for Pakistan. Uh, India, of course, did not follow through, I think, for many reasons, um, but in part because it may well have feared that China, Pakistan's uh, close ally, would retaliate by building dams to prevent the Brahmaputra from flowing into India. And China, unlike India, can actually move very quickly uh, and efficiently to do big things like building uh, big dams. So you know, just to wrap up, um, I'd also highlight a very important fact covered in the report that natural resource stress, particularly in terms of water and energy, it can, it can breed and exacerbate insurgencies. Uh, so you have the, the uh, a Baluch separatist insurgency in Pakistan long running for many years. It's driven in great part by what it perceives to be um, natural gas inequities in the region and perceived exploitation of local gas resources by the state. The Naxalite insurgency in India is very similar. It's driven by perceived inequitable coal exploitation at the hands of the state. Um, climate change uh, can also be very destabilizing. It can increase urban violence. If you look at large growing overcrowded cities uh, in the Himalayan region, and particularly in India and Pakistan, land can be scarce. Um, flooding and other serious weather can wash away land, making land even more scarce, and that could intensify, intensify violent activities, particularly those of, of land mafias. Climate refugees can cause not just societal tensions, but also disruptions. Um, this has already happened in India, where you've had flood victims um, from Bangladesh pouring into northeastern India, but it happens in India and in Pakistan, too, in domestic contexts. Flooding uproots communities and forces them, in many cases, to relocate to urban spaces where they face new challenges, securing basic services. And this can lead to all types of problems, dire privation, desperation, and perhaps radicalization as well. Also, aging infrastructure um, in climate-vulnerable areas can cause all kinds of problems. There's a very old nuclear reactor in Karachi. Um, Karachi, of course, is a port city. The nuclear reactor goes by the acronym of CANUP, which I think stands for Karachi Nuclear Power Plant. Um, if a cyclone were to hit Karachi, um, it, could, it could cause all kinds of, of um, problems to this, to this reactor, which could emit all types of, re of radiation, inducing a mass catastrophe. Um, so I think, you know, to wrap up, the U.S. is, the U.S. plays a key role and should play a key role when it comes to these water issues. It's not just a matter of, it's not just a simple matter of major supply and demand gaps, but clean water shortages on the subcontinent, I would argue that they're a nightmare scenario come true, not just potential, but actually in here and there. I mean, the outright scarcities, rapid consumption of groundwater, you know, heartbreaking public health costs, they're all there. Uh, and dirty water kills more than 600 uh, Pakistani children every day. And a very memorable stat is that more Pakistanis in Karachi um, die from dirty water every month than the total number of Pakistanis that have been killed in all of its wars with India. Um, so I'll leave you with that in terms of a sobering thought. Well, uh, my Hudson colleague, uh, Dr. Aparna Pandey, would probably be focusing on trade and connectivity issues, uh, which are an important element of this state. And then when we start our conversation, I would like all of us to also focus uh, on what we, during the process of working on the uh, report, looked at the questions of cultural preservation. Because uh, at the moment, uh, there are about 200 210 million people who live in the Himalayas. And then there's 2 billion people who draw their water uh, from the Himalayas, with the 10 major rivers uh, having their sources in the Himalayas. 
Uh, so all of that kind of makes it a much more integrated region than it has been treated as in policy terms. And we'll come to that in a bit. Uh, Dr. Pandey, please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Mr. Hakani. Um, it was a pleasure to be part of this working group. Um, I'll focus on the regional connectivity and trade aspect. Weak states' contested sovereignties across the Himalayas have induced a number of regional actors to seek deeper physical as well as economic connectivity uh, through new infrastructure that supports transportation needs, supports trade and commerce, and also provides access to resources. However, um, long-standing border disputes, rivalries means that efforts to foster greater connectivity in this region um, are laden with geopolitical significance. As a result, there is an inherent challenge in trying to disentangle the benign aspect of trade and infrastructure development with that of strategic concern and the broader uh, contest for influence. Um, China's One Belt, One Road, or BRI, uh, its expanding presence in South Asia and the greater Himalayan region, uh, higher interest loans to countries in the region, excluding India, to build sensitive infrastructure, whether it's ports or roads and highways, have deepened concerns about um, Chinese domination or Chinese presence that would undermine economic and political opportunities for the people of the region. Um, the U.S. still very recently has actually preferred to adopt a hands-off approach. Um, what we try to argue in this report is that the United States should engage in a more hands-on approach, primarily because these regional connectivity schemes uh, can promote uh, American interests, um, as well as ensure rule setting in the trade and investment sphere, ensure standards of environmental issues, financing, corruption, as well as a balance of power in the region that favors friends and allies. Um, the report also puts forth the argument that the United States should support and, and um, other uh, infrastructure initi initiatives. For example, the quality infrastructure initiative uh, developed by Japan uh, by the Prime Minister Abe in 2016, it's about $200 billion. Uh, which is an alternative for countries in the region. Um, Japan has for decades been seen as a no-strings uh, donor to developing countries and one which completes its projects on time. And uh, it sort of um, works with the local government um, to help the country mm -hmm. concerned. Um, I'll stop there um, and then the rest I can answer in Q&A. Good. Well, yeah, we do have four major recommendations, which I will list, and one of them you focused on, which is engaging, uh, and these are recommendations to the U.S. government, to the Trump administration, what should it do to have an integrated approach towards, um, uh, towards the Himalayas. And one of those recommendations is engaging in a more hands-on approach regarding trans-Himalayan connectivity to support development that serves the people of the region. Uh, my next, uh, our next speaker is my Hudson colleague, Eric Brown. Eric deals with a lot of uh, hard security issues, uh, has also been uh, examining the role of China uh, and its efforts to try and dominate the region. So, Eric, your thoughts. Thoughts, yes. Um, uh, I'm have the unenviable task of going last and, and batting cleanup, so I'm going to reinforce a lot of what was said and hopefully add on to it. What I'd like to attempt to do, since I've been asked to talk a little bit about the strategic and geopolitical 
dimensions and thinking that went into this report, I'd like to try to tie some of the larger strategic themes to the core themes of population security that we tried to take up in the report that Senator Whitehouse had spoken about, and that, in fact, in a, through our report, which called for an integrated approach to the region, we attempted to address. Anybody who visits the region understands that geopolitics and population security are, are deeply connected. The Himalayas, as we know, is a classical shatterbelt. Um, there was a great book written by Professor James Scott at uh, Yale University called uh, The Art of Not Being Governed, which talks about the peoples of the Zunia Massif, historically, as being a bunch of very uh, human topography that's as deeply uh, variegated culturally as is the terrain of the Himalayas. And over the course of centuries, many of the larger state-building projects in China and in the Asian subcontinent and elsewhere had always attempted to establish a position there, but the people in the Zamiya Massif had always repelled those efforts from a lot of the more agrarian imperial powers down below. That history has very much changed uh, today, um, and the peoples of the Himalayas are very much caught up in um, uh, the new contest for power that was mentioned earlier that's been ongoing, not only between China and others, um, but between different states. And more times than not, uh, it is the people in the middle who suffer uh, as a consequence of this, and quite greatly. So in answer to the question that was posed earlier about how important is it the US for the US to get involved on the frontiers in the Himalayas, I think it's the ball game. Um, and I think we need to take, as proposed in the report, a much, much more comprehensive and multidimensional approach to improving population security all across the Himalayan frontiers and all of the countries affected by it. But to do that, we also have to engage in geopolitics. Um, why? In 1978, the US undertook, as we all remember, to basically crack the communist world in half by abetting the rise of China. Uh, through the mobilization of an enormous amount of human capital and expertise, uh, the U.S. made strategic investments in China's political economy, which had been junked by the Mao Zedong regime. Uh, China itself had been destroyed by the first 30 years of the People's Republic of China's rule. And the U.S. wanted to help um, uh, China to recover from this for clear strategic reasons. We had an, and it was that involvement that helped to abet the rise of China. We had an opportunity to reappraise that whole security strategy in 1991. But for a variety of different reasons, one, there was a lot of good money to be made. Another reason was there was a conceit on both sides, all across the political spectrum here in the United States, that more economic involvement with the Chinese mainland would also lead to a political uh, remodeling of the Chinese system of government. That, unfortunately, has not yet happened. It may yet happen, but it has not yet happened. And so now we have a situation where, partly because we've involved ourselves in abetting the rise of China for all of this time, we've created an enormous geopolitical imbalance across Asia. Uh, and what we have is an aggressive and revisionist People's Republic of China, which is pressing unfounded territorial claims against maritime nations in the East China Sea and in the South China Sea. At the same time, the People's Republic of China is also pressing unfounded claims, territorial claims, across its continental borders, principally through the Himalayas, but also through, I think I, I would argue, through various other arrangements with actors like the Punjabi-dominated uh, state in Pakistan and elsewhere, where it's essentially acquiring clients through which it can 
aggrandize itself, both in the Himalayas and South Asia, and push for unimpeded access, it hopes, I think, certainly Chinese strategists hope, toward the East Indian Ocean. We do ourselves here in the United States a disservice not to attempt to connect these two strategic competitions. Why? China is a hybrid power, a hybrid country power. It has a maritime border as well as a continental border. It cannot aggrandize itself on both fronts at once. And so by virtue of that reality, there has been a coming together, both between India, the Indo, and the various Pacific nations who are worried about their security and about their sovereignty, and who have, I think, awoken in very recent years from the mental torpor and said that if their security and their way of life is going to be protected, it's time now for us to acknowledge our core interests, and that involves keeping the Indo-Pacific free and secure. Uh, including from powers that are attempting to undermine the sovereignty of all of the nations, which are, and including many nations that are established capitalist democracies and other nations which are attempting still to form themselves on a more durable political and economic basis. This is the ballgame in the Indo-Pacific. And because of that, we've had a lot of interesting statements from the new administration, which has been driving forward a lot of sentiments that have been de developed over the last decade by both Democrats and Republicans. And that has been to make an effort to really attempt to consummate the US relationship with India in particular. Uh, secretary Tillerson made a really remarkable speech, remarkable for a Secretary of State um, uh, not too long ago at CSIS, where he talked about the US-India relationship in a 100-year frame. It was making clear, he was making clear, I think, in the speech that the US very much intends to run this marathon and it's very in, in, interested in cultivating India as a strategic ally with which to, or a strategic partner with which to run that marathon for that century-long time frame. In this way of thinking, uh, there's a belief, both here in some quarters in Washington and also in India, that the US and India could be to the 21st century what the US and the UK were to the 20th century. Now, that's very big thinking. Um, and there, of course, are very important practical questions about whether, in fact, we can actually pull that off, and, of course, why. Well, one thing that I would like to argue is that if the goal, uh, as has been stated in, here in Washington and Japan and also in India, if the goal, first and foremost, is to ensure the free and open order in the Indo-Pacific, that is, amongst the blue waters of, this, of these mar disconnected, right now, maritime spheres, we can't neglect the Himalayas, uh, in part because the livelihoods of all of the states, the littoral states, which are connected to the greater Indo-Pacific, in part feeds off of the Himalayas. Secondly, as well, um, our efforts to pull India into a maritime-based uh, uh, coalition are affected by India's insecurity presently on its continental borders. And that insecurity has come to be very deeply threatened, I think, particularly since 2008, where we've seen a rapid increase in China's invisible incursion policy. Actually, I don't much like that word invisible because it's not very invisible. It's just plain ignored by a lot of media, both here in the United States and also in India. What has happened, however, is that certainly according to Indian accounts, Brahma Chalani had estimated that there is an incursion by PRC uh, forces uh, into Indian territory every 24 hours. 
another uh, Indian government official has speculated that upwards of over 2,000 square kilometers have been lost by India over the last 10 years of Chinese incursion. This incursion is happening not just simply through military means, but what's happening are shepherds and others are coming in, uh, civilians are coming in, and then Chinese forces come in behind them and attempt to essentially uh, claim this territory for themselves. This is entirely a function of the fact that Chinese power has come to be very deeply consolidated and entrenched in the Tibetan nation of the central Himalayas. And as a consequence of that, Tibet has become a sort of launching pad for future other PRC efforts to aggrandize itself in neighboring communities. The claim that PRC makes in Arunachal Pradesh, for example, is based on some incredible history that PRC think tanks have concocted that Arunachal is connected to, to, to Tibet. Likewise, Ladakh is claimed um, uh, by many Chinese historians as being, in fact, little Tibet, when, in fact, Ladakh, this very important region in northern India, uh, has a very different strategic cultural history from the Tibetan one. And local Ladakhis feel somewhat um, uh, bothered by the fact that people refer to them as, uh, as little Tibet um, when they have uh, a great history of their own, which is, in fact, as Hussein said, now under threat. So I'm going to stop there. Good. Um, no, not good that you're stopping there. Uh, I'll pick up again good, in a good, bit. Whatever, but, uh, whatever everybody has contributed to the discussion. Um, before we open uh, the floor for questions, uh, 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 I open the uh, uh, questions from the floor. Let me just ask a question. Uh, the recommendations of the, uh, uh, of the group as a whole uh, include definitely a, con a concern about an assertive China. Uh, and that, uh, it, it, it also talks about India-China tensions and then about Pakistan's role. But in the conversation, it's very apparent that while there are these larger actors uh, that have uh, significance in the Himalayan region, there are what one could call cultural entities or cultural and political entities uh, going back centuries that are under threat. We've already heard about Tibet. Uh, Eric spoke about it. Ladakh is another. Uh, Sikkim, uh, Bhutan. Uh, even Arunachal Pradesh, while being a state within the Indian Union, it has a unique cultural and historic identity. Um, will the people of the Himalayas be able to retain their cultures, their uh, historic identities, uh, or is it their fate that they will end up being squeezed by the giants around them who want to assimilate? I mean, it's possible for them, and, and all of these have survived over the centuries by having close relationships with the much larger uh, kingdoms or powers around them. But that was always on the assumption that the great powers will not eliminate or threaten the cultures. And so we still have people in Ladakh who live a certain way of life. They are uh, Buddhists, in, even though they are part of the Indian Union, but or, or part of the Jammu and Kashmir state, which is now... Uh, 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 under Indian control, but they've maintained their cultural identity. Similarly, the Sikkimese have maintained <coughs> their identity over the centuries. Bhutan has maintained its independence uh, and its identity. Um, Nepal would argue that it's also under pressure, 
and it's being made into a, uh, a battleground for uh, Indo-Chinese competition. Um, what happens to these uh, cultures, uh, these uh, historic entities, and what role is there for the United States in particular and for the rest of the world in ensuring that that cultural elimin elimination does not happen? Anybody? Eric? Uh, well, I would say that first off, um, one need only look at the uh, cultural uh, repression and repression of people in Xinjiang and in Tibet to see that uh, the PRC, as it's presently constituted, is not an ally in attempting to preserve uh, civilian, um, the historical cultures of the Himalayas, among other places. Um, but we add to this another part of the problem, and that is up until relatively recently, uh, other states in the region have been relatively weak and unable to provide an alternative form of governance um, for the peoples of the Himalayas. In fact, there was a strategic decision in Delhi made a long time ago not to develop the region, including not to solicit insights, in, insights from the locals, in part because Delhi was concerned that Pakistan or perhaps India or China would use uh, infrastructure that India built against them. Um, that strategy, how, however, has come to be outdated, in part because of the significant military and economic presence that the PRC has established across the frontier borderlands that India and China uh, share. Um, uh, China is now involving itself uh, economically on the Indian side of that border and also in some of the factions amongst the various religious groups uh, along the Buddhist frontier across the Himalayas. And the only way to meet that threat is not only by augmenting um, uh, India's uh, military capability, but also encouraging India to provide an alternative form of government uh, for the local peoples in which the local peoples have a say in, in, in their own development and in their own security. Uh, a hybrid defense is required, and that requires not just the fast-twitch muscles of greater deterrence, but also the slow-twitch muscles, which will allow this marathon to be run. Okay. Uh, Aparna, you were saying something? Just a few points to add on. Uh, one is that, um, unfortunately, uh, the region has ecological challenges, uh, not very well developed in some parts, so many people leave that region for livelihood outside, and that has an impact on the local economy. Uh, thirdly, uh, not just Tibet and Xinjiang, but if you go to Gilgit, Baltistan, and other parts, um, if you look uh, as CPEC expands and China's OBR. CPEC is the China Pakistan Economic, Economic Corridor, expands. which is part of the Road and Belt Initiative. So um, Chinese uh, laborers um, and Chinese um, uh, engineers come into the region. There's, there are uh, reports about. Um, a change in the ethnic demographics of the region because of the number of people entering that region. Uh, that's another factor in this. Okay, Jeff. I'd like to piggyback off a few comments Eric made. And, I, and I'd like you to address the whole question of uh, what can be an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative. Ah, I will. So, so incorporate that, that in your that answer. That was actually yeah. a part of it. And um, Eric's presentation touched on, I think, a couple very important points. Um, that underscore the nature of, of this report, the interconnectedness of the Himalayan region. Uh, a phrase that you've heard a lot more of lately is the Indo-Pacific region. 
um, initially promoted by Australian strategists and think tanks. It's come to be incorporated into the lexicon of um, Japan, uh, India now, as well as the United States. I think President Trump was the first U.S. president to use the phrase Indo-Pacific recently, but you've seen it with greater frequency in policy documents from the Pentagon. Uh, Pacific Command still likes Indo-Asia Pacific, uh, but uh, we've seen this because I think strategists in Asia and here increasingly see the Indian Ocean and Pacific regions but also the continental space as an interconnected strategic sphere. Developments in one increasingly impact uh, and have consequences for countries in the other space. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, I think China's very ambitious uh, One Belt, One Road initiative, or Belt and Road initiative, um, is, is accelerating the interconnectedness of the space and the um, degree to which we must think of it all uh, in, in the same strategic paradigm. And uh, really, a, a remarkable waypoint in, in India's history, I think, in the history of China-India relations, but in India's foreign policy evolution, post-Cold War foreign policy evolution in general, was uh, the fact that it essentially stood up as the only country in the world to say, we are not subscribing to the One Belt, One, One Road initiative. Not only are we not going to send representation or join it, but we're going to very publicly voice our criticism and where we have concerns and why we think this type of infrastructure vision uh, doesn't suit either our interests or the interests of many of the countries involved. And for a long time, they were the lonely uh, voice on the Hill. And the United States and Japan and Australia um, sort of withheld their opinion and waited, I think, until about two months ago before coming down hard one way or another. And in the speech uh, that Eric mentioned, and in fact, uh, in briefer comments by Secretary Mattis uh, the week beforehand, I think the US came out for the first time and expressed very uh, direct and serious reservations about China's One Belt, One Road initiative. Within a week, uh, Australian officials were expressing some concerns, and the Japanese have now um, added to their qualified levels of support. They've always maintained that, sure, we would support the One Belt, One Road initiative if it did X, Y, and Z. And by the way, X, Y, and Z were many of the things um, that, that OBER has been criticized for. Um, so not only has this criticism become more explicit, but the US, India, and Japan, and Australia have uh, been working together uh, through trilateral mechanisms and bilateral mechanisms to promote an alternative infrastructure vision. Uh, that's been happening for about two years now, but just in the last month or two, we've seen, I think, a crystallization of that effort. And more recently, as of this morning, we have learned that the quadrilateral initiative, which was uh, unceremoniously um, fell apart 10 years ago in 2007, the US, India, Japan, and Australia began a strategic dialogue and held an unprecedented naval exercise later that year. Uh, it fell apart uh, the following year when the change in government in Australia there have been efforts underway to build another quadrilateral grouping for many years now. Um, 
and it has resulted in overlapping trilateral agreements among the three countries. But it looks like finally that effort has paid off, and on the sidelines of the many multilateral events taking place in Asia, uh, next month there will be another assistant secretary level strategic dialogue among the four countries, um, which is essentially a coalescing of this balancing activity that we've seen. Um, and these efforts to create an alternative and promote a free and open Indo-Pacific that each of the four countries see as increasingly under threat. Uh, this rules-based order that you see referenced are a series of norms, rules, and principles that they argue are increasingly being challenged by Chinese behavior and activities, and the effort to create a balancing coalition uh, to preserve that rules-based order is, um, is, is crystallizing now. Michael, you were going to say something. Yeah, very briefly. I mean, just on the issue of vulnerable um, uh, communities, uh, clearly the trend lines are not good, though I'll say here is not to single anyone out, but there are one or two people in the audience that I think could weigh in on this uh, in a very uh, uh, good way. Um, you know, on the issue of, of CPEC, I mean, just to put in a point here, I think it's true, I mean, as, as you noted, Jeff, that recently we've been hearing some pretty critical messaging from the administration, from the Trump administration. That's striking because until relatively recently, you weren't hearing explicit criticism or even that much implicit criticism of CPEC coming from the U.S. It's, it's more of a recent thing. And I think you know, the important thing to keep in mind with, with CPEC is I think the way that, you, or the, way that the U.S. Would, would regard it um, would really depend on the lens through which it wants to see CPEC. If it wants to look at CPEC through the lens of economics, um, then it sees this project that is aiming to attain some objectives that would really reflect U.S. Uh, interests in Pakistan, right? I mean, CPEC is meant to build roads, build power plants, uh, get rid of this horrific energy crisis that Pakistan has. It's meant to boost employment. These are all things that U.S. policy would support in Pakistan. But it's when you begin to look at it through the lens of strategic uh, issues, that's, I think, where the, the problems and the concern sets in. I think that's where uh, the U.S. is coming down right now, seeing this as another effort by Washington's chief strategic competitor um, to cement its influence and presence in a region where the U.S. is increasingly not absent, but less present. So I'll end with that. Okay, well, so we've had quite a, a lot of views and insights. Let's open this to the floor. Our questions and comments, if you're going to make comments, make them very brief. If you're going to ask questions, make sure they sound like questions. Uh, and uh, and uh, just raise your hand. I'll identify you. Uh, ask for the mic. Wait for it. Uh, identify yourself and then ask the question or make a comment. Yes, right here. Hi, my name is Emily Tallow. I'm an intern at the Stimson Center. And I had a question about the Belt and Road Initiative and Tillerson's comments about the predatory economics of the Belt and Road Initiative and the need to partner with India to create an alternative. Um, if the U.S. does decide to partner with India to create some kind of alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative, whether formal or informal, um, how will it deal with the apprehensions that are felt by some of the states within India's neighborhood about the over-influence of India in their countries? Um, and the, the suspicion that they are engaging with China on these on, in the Belt and Road Initiative in order to counter this dependence on India or to provide some sort of alternative. Um, any, anyone's thoughts on that? 
I can offer a few things. Oh, I think it's a good point, and for many uh, of the smaller countries in South Asia, China, at least initially, was viewed as a way to balance India's influence. This is the external power. India is the close hegemon. More Chinese presence and interest and influence gives us options and increases our leverage with Delhi, by the way. Um, that makes sense. Uh, what they found, and I think Sri Lanka presents the most salient and potent example, is that when you welcome billions of dollars of Chinese investments, um, there are some unintended consequences at times. Uh, the first is that many of these countries are taking loans that they can't repay. So Sri Lanka's debt uh, as a percentage of GDP has absolutely skyrocketed <laughs> off of the back of billions of dollars of Chinese loans. Some for commercial projects that um, aren't reaping any economic value, like the Hambantota Airport. Um, I think there's one flight a day going in and out of the airport, but it was a multi-million dollar project that China lended money to Sri Lanka to build. The money went to Chinese companies to build it, who paid Chinese workers, um, and the profit goes to Chinese banks on the interest. And when Sri Lanka comes into financial trouble repaying the loans and asks for uh, debt forgiveness or debt repayment, the Chinese say, sure, you can either borrow more money or you can give us an equity stake in the port, in the airport. We've also found that there are secret provisions that have been slipped into many of these um, port and infrastructure agreements. The one in Sri Lanka, for instance, uh, the Chinese initially demanded sovereign control of the airspace over parts of the port. Um, this was unacceptable to most countries and was unacceptable to the Sri Lankan people and most government officials once they found out um, that this had been inserted in the agreement. Uh, we know that China has been funding its um, favored political candidates, uh, illegally channeling money to them through the Sri Lankan system and are now under investigation. And there's this broader overhang, this broader belief that ostensibly economic projects under the One Belt, One Road initiative carry a strategic connotation to them, that they're meant to advance China's strategic ambitions rather than any commercial or economic agenda. And I think, unfortunately for China, there's been enough evidence uh, underpinning that concern um, that it's only going to continue to grow until and unless this initiative becomes much more transparent. Um, in terms of creating an alternative, I don't know that anyone in the region would object to having another option. No one is going to force any infrastructure projects on anyone, certainly not the Japanese, certainly not the United States, and I think certainly not India. What they would like to do is say, if those terms look unfavorable to you, and don't just look at the economic terms of the agreement, which, by the way, aren't always that favorable either. These are not grants. They're loans at commercial interest rates often much higher than what the World Bank offers and other international lenders. But even if the economic terms are favorable, consider the other strategic implications as well. Consider the level of transparency, the quality of the work, who is getting paid, um, the environmental standards. And after you've made that assessment, if you want an alternative, we don't want only one game in town. And with Japan's overseas development assistance and with the support of the United States uh, and India, we may be prepared to help you. Okay, um, right there. 
Uh, I'm Seema Sirohi. I wanted to ask Eric um, about the ability of this administration to deliver on this vision that Tillerson uh, sort of painted uh, in his speech. Yes, it was a really remarkable speech, but we know uh, that the last time the Obama administration tried, they even changed the name from pivot to rebalance and then you know, just kept softening the stand. Uh, it's an open question. And uh, I mean, my take on it um, is informed by what I read in the newspapers and, <laughs> and uh, from living here in Washington. But uh, you know, there's enormous opportunity in any administration for backsliding, uh, political backsliding, including on key strategic under initiatives such as this. And every new administration, some more than others, experience uh, levels of dysfunction. Um, uh, and we don't know yet how that is fully impacting this administration's uh, efforts to actually implement some of its visions. That said, these were pretty big words from Secretary Tillerson. Uh, and they're also words that I think have quite broad support here in the United States politically. Um, uh, and they're notions, concepts, strategic concepts that have been nurtured for some time here in the United States. And I think their time is ripe. Uh, and so some leadership from the administration on this um, uh, is likely going to drive things quicker forward than, uh, than has happened in the past, I think. Michael, you wanted to say something. Yeah, just quick. I, I think that you know, it's true we hear all about how this administration is unorganized and disciplined, and when it comes to foreign policy, it's very hard to predict. But I think that if you look at the U.S.-India relationship, this is one relationship that I think, to me at least, the Trump administration really seems to want to get right and achieve a level of continuity with what was there with the Obama administration, where the relationship was really moving forward. And certainly there could be backsliding, and there could be problems that arise. But my sense is that this is one area, this is one partnership where the Trump White House really wants to move forward, therefore suggesting that you know, this great vision laid out by, uh, by Tillerson in that speech could well be pursued in a serious way. And sometimes what we all assume to be backsliding is just uh, a combination of many, many factors. Sometimes uh, resources are not immediately available for something grand. Sometimes the other side is also not moving fast enough. Um, the, 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 both India and uh, the United States are democracies. Democracies have their own inbuilt constraints and restraints on grand visions being implemented. Uh, you know, there are rules that have to change. There are uh, uh, policy documents that have to be rewritten. There are parliamentary committees in India and congressional committees in the United States that have to sort of be uh, satisfied. So um, I actually agree with uh, both Eric and Michael, but Michael's uh, view that usually strategic partnerships are a... I, are, are conceptual before they become practical. So for example, the Anglo-American partnership was an idea uh, even before the First World War when it actually kind of uh, became operationalized in a military sense. And, uh, and, and I think that we are seeing a similar partnership emerge uh, between India and the United States. And it might take time to actually take shape and by the way, for that, I would uh, you know, say that the Indians need to reflect on their own uh, sort of patterns as much as 
uh, they want to make comments about uh, America's uh, uh, sort of uh, American administration's abilities to to backslide. The Indian side backslides much faster uh, and more often, and then the American side does. So, so, so that should be clear. Um, yes, right there, and then we'll come here. Uh, yes, my name is Roger Cochetti, and I have a question about the uh, prospect of an alliance or a closer relationship militarily, politically, and otherwise between the United States and India. Um, for those who sort of study history, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, during the Nixon-Kissinger years, the United States playing the China card against Russia, Russia playing the Pakistan card against uh uh, 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 India, uh, I, I, excuse me, Russia playing pa the India card against China, China playing the Pakistan card against uh, uh, India, India, uh, India trying to play the Afghanistan card against Pakistan, mm. uh, Pakistan swallowing Afghanistan, and the Taliban and Al Qaeda resulted in everything blew up. So that w w there are downstream consequences to this Metternichian approach of playing this card against so-and-so because it's hard to imagine the United States forging a close alliance with India without alienating Pakistan and who knows who else. So my question is, could any of you discuss the downstream consequences? You know, there's nothing wrong with adverse downstream consequences, but we should enter into something as important as this with our eyes open saying, these, this is going to be the fallout. This will be the downstream consequences for Indonesia, for Saudi Arabia, for you know, uh, Kuwait, for Iraq, for Iran, whatever. What are the downstream consequences to this, and are we willing to live with them? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, maybe the most significant downstream consequence is the one that you mentioned, which is that it risks alienating Pakistan, and I just don't care. I don't think anyone cares anymore. Pakistan isn't concerned about alienating us with its support to the Taliban and the Haqqani network. Anyone who thinks that America should um, you know, alter our strategic decision-making out of deference to Pakistani sensitivities is mad. Uh, the question of whether or not we're using India as a, as a card against China, I think it's a fair question, but, but in no way do I see it as a card. The, relationship is so much more than that. It's a civilizational bond. It's become one, in my opinion. If you look at polling in both countries, uh, Indians are more pro-American than maybe any other population on Earth. Uh, it's usually about an 80% approval rating, 6 or 7% disapprove. I think Americans in the most recent poll, 74% are either somewhat favorable or highly favorable toward India. There's bipartisan consensus among both Republicans and Democrats in support of the relationship. Indian Americans are the most affluent uh, community in the United States of foreign expatriates. So uh, the, the link goes much farther and much deeper now uh, than any balancing game against China or Pakistan. These are two democracies that actually shared a tremendous amount of uh, strategic convergence, even back during the Cold War. It's just that the sort of artificial Cold War alignments of the time, um, I think, prevented us from realizing some of those mutual interests. And it wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union and some of that hangover 
um, had time to fade, did we realize uh, that actually, in many ways, we are natural partners, and in the words of Prime Minister Modi, uh, natural allies, though not in a conventional sense of treaty allies. Well, both Eric and Michael want to say something, but before that, I want to say something, because when you listed that, you know, that this happened and that happened, you missed out the big ones. For example, the big ones was that the consequence of the US-China understanding was that the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, it hastened that process in some ways. Uh, similarly, uh, India may have used the, uh, the Soviet Union may have used the India card against China, but is it that the Soviets used it, or was there a natural and historic background to it? After all, in 1962, when India was close to China, that didn't stop the Chinese uh, from uh, flexing their muscle towards India. So maybe you are overemphasizing the downstream consequences. There are always downstream consequences, but you are missing out the bigger consequences for the smaller ones, uh, which, which are not unimportant, but uh, which should be taken in the context of one another. Uh, Michael first and then Eric. Yeah, so two quick, quick comments. Two, yeah, two quick things. Um, I agree with Jeff that we're in a different era now when it comes to this notion of, um, of upsetting Pakistan with how we deal with, with India. Um, and certainly, the US, I think, will continue to be cautious, but not as cautious as it used to be. Um, and I think that the Trump administration would not have explicitly called on India to take on a larger role in Afghanistan uh, if it were still being exceedingly cautious, because that was a major development. I mean, there was nothing new about Trump in his speech putting Pakistan on notice. He's, the, the past US presidents have done that very frequently. But this is the first time, so far as I know, that there is an explicit call for uh, India to step up its role in Afghanistan. Secondly, I, I, I do think we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Uh, I think that you know, this notion of talking about a deeper alliance between the US and India, I, I don't think we're at a point yet where we're going to be thinking about these two countries fighting wars uh, alongside each other. We're nowhere near that point. And I think that when you look at the US-India relationship, one of the biggest challenges is, how does each side define strategic partnership? Yeah. For me, that's a big question. Uh, you know, for, the, for India, it's a lot about arms trade, technology transfers. But the US may be more interested in operational partnerships, including war fighting together. Yeah. Eric? Just to reinforce what Michael said, I mean, there is an enormous amount of strategic convergence, as Jeff put it. But I take your point. It's very important to look under the hood and to be very prudent. Uh, Metternichian schemes, as you put it, often do have second and third order consequences. They don't always uh, produce the desirable strategic and political outcomes that we want, ever since, particularly in the Middle East and in Asia. But ever since the Clinton administration, the, the, the approach that the United States has generally tended to take toward India has focused on empowerment. Uh, the important question that the US needs to be asking, and it's a more important question for Delhi and India to be asking, is, well, what kind of power does India want to become? That is a question that I think is going to shape this 100-year relationship. Uh, right now, there's no antagonism between our two political systems. But we don't even know what kind of power we ourselves will become in 20 years, let alone there's very few Americans that have actually looked at the sort of deeper cultural, political, and civilizational discussions which are going on now in India right now. That's why I think when you take an integrated approach, including to the Himalayas, but also to the India relationship, you need to move away from the empowerment paradigm and think also in terms of encouragement. Can India master itself? not just its environment, but master itself to improve the security of the vulnerable populations along its frontiers. 
That's a strategic priority, but it requires something more than simply augmenting military capability. It, it requires the buildup of governing institutions and soft civilian institutions, which can actually help the people of that part of the world fend off the predatory efforts of others. Well, we wanted to end this at 1.30, so that's the last question right here. Hi, um, Adi Ramachandran, Atlantic Council, South Asia Center. My question was about the potential for a riparian conflict in India and China. Uh, it's to the panel generally. What do you maintain are the odds of the inevitable diversion of waters on the Brahmaputra River, which run through India and Bangladesh to China? What would be the role of the United States in a diplomatic solution to quelling this crisis? And in the worst case scenario, what do you think the risks are and what would that mean for the region generally? Just who wants to go? Eric or uh, Jeff? On that? Uh, this has become an issue, I think, of growing significance and salience in China-India relations. In recent years, you've certainly seen more commentary on it. Uh, the reality is, to date, China has built a few dams on the Brahmaputra River, um, but they are run-of-the-river dams. I mean, they don't have significant water storage or diversion capacity. So China doesn't have very significant capacity yet and certainly hasn't used it to alter the flow of water into India to date. Um, the question is what, what happens in the future if it does decide to do so. And as, as I believe the first question today uh, to, to the senator uh, addressed this, which is that there were reports that dropped just this last week that China may look into building a massive water diversion project from Tibet to Xinjiang. This has been rumored about for many years now that could significantly impact water flow into India. And uh, India has been for some time pushing for a more uh, systematized water information sharing agreement with China, which China has, has thus far resisted. The Chinese Foreign Ministry came out, I believe today or last night, and said that report was not true. We have no plans to build this massive tunnel. Even the report was somewhat thinly sourced and was speculative that this is a project that Chinese engineers have begun to think about. Maybe it's something we could do in 10 years. Um, so I think that is an, a space over the long term to watch that could become a significant source of tension. But in the short term, um, I don't think that's in sort of the immediate um, surface level points of friction or, or areas of concern. The good, the good thing about sort of long-term things is that there's always time also to respond to it. Yeah. So, so, so yes, theoretically every upper riparian can build huge massive dams and divert waters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then there are always other consequences they have to think about. There are international and political and military consequences that they have to consider. And the time it takes, although I agree with Michael, the Chinese do it much more efficiently and much faster, but still mm. from design to execution, there is always enough time for everybody else to respond. It's not something like turning the tap off. And this is something that I've always spoken to Pakistanis about, uh, when they say that, you know, India will turn the tap off, that there is no tap to be turned off. Any big any big dam to be built, et cetera, will, will be very visible, will be known, and everybody will know how to do it. But usually upper and lower riparians have to work things out among themselves. And that's what has to happen in this region. Last word to my colleague, Eric Brown. So on the water issue, 
First order of business is diplomacy, but those frameworks don't yet exist right now. I think we're going to be more successful in making uh, and coming to some sort of diplomatic settlement for governing diminished water resources across the Himalayas if the United States takes an interest in helping India establish some sort of deterrence in Dalklam and in other areas. That said, for reasons that the senator had mentioned and that are described in a report that you've written about, among others, uh, water is going to be a huge issue for human security for all the riparian downstream states. And there are certain aspects of Chinese behavior that will exacerbate that, but the underlying problem is environmental and ecological. And those problems are going to present in 10, 20, 30 years' time. To get ahead of this potential human catastrophe, investments now need to be made, not just on the diplomatic and military realm, to deal with Doklam, which concerns the future of Bangladesh and a good part of India, but also making investments in advanced desalinization technology for all the lower riparian states, uh, conservation, among other things, advanced agriculture. All of these civilian security issues are absolutely important to address now, because those systems, even though we have time, are going to take a long time to actually get into place and actually be able to address and alleviate the suffering that, in, that, people, that people are facing now in Pakistan, in India, and elsewhere. Michael wants to make a comment before we end this afternoon. Yeah, very briefly. I think it's a great question. And there, in my view, the reason why you really need to worry about China and the potential for water conflict involving China is that unlike India and Pakistan, China does not participate. It hasn't been willing to participate in transnational or multilateral water agreements or treaties. I mean, you say what you want about the Indus Waters Treaty, but it's been there and it's been around for, what, 50, 60 years. China, to this point, has not been willing to participate in those types of mechanisms. And I think that's a a worrisome prospect. Well, on that note, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I do invite everyone to read the report online. It's available there. It's the integrated approach, the Himalayas. Uh, a big thank you to all our uh, working group members and their contributions, and a thank you to all of you for attending and for those who were watching it on, uh, the, uh, uh, on, on the World Wide Web. Uh, thank you all for watching. Thank you.